Naim Dalal. I was born in Baghdad, 1924. That's one of the video testimonies contained in the Sephardi Voices Collection, stories and interviews with hundreds of survivors of the mass expulsion of nearly a million Jews from Arab lands after 1948. The interviews tell the little-known story of the Jews who'd lived there for more than 2,000 years, in some cases, but were forced to flee after the Second World War, when radical Islamists opposed to the founding of the Jewish state kicked them out, but not without a series of pogroms, and worse. Unlike the story of the Palestinians, which is well-known, as the book points out, these Jews were never declared refugees, never got financial help, and in fact many lost everything, including their citizenship and their communities, priceless ancient synagogues and cemeteries were destroyed. For the last few years, a Canadian-led team of researchers has been gathering these testimonies from around the world, and this week they're about to donate 80 videos of survivors who came to Canada. They're going to be in the Library and Archives of Canada in Ottawa. There'll be a ceremony and also a book launch on Thursday night because there's a new coffee table book which gives eyewitness personal accounts of the sweeping exile of Jews from Algeria, Yemen, Libya, Syria, Iraq, just to name a few, and Morocco. The United Nations set up a, a refugee agency dedicated completely to Palestinians that continues to this day and did nothing for any of the, the Jews that were expelled. There is, and you know, the sort of number of resolutions of the United Nations deploring the situation of the Palestinians. I mean, there's one a year, two a year, every year, year in, year out. There are almost none deploring what happened with respect to the Jews. Although it was very similar. In fact, more people were deported than the estimates are 700,000 Palestinians, probably 850,000, 900,000 Jews. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. Welcome to the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. The timing of the launch of the new coffee table book and the ceremony is full of symbolism. It is the 81st anniversary of the Farhud, a pogrom against Jews in Baghdad in June of 1941 during the festival of Shavuot that sparked the eventual exile of this community. Coming up, we'll speak to one of the project's Canadian organizers, Richard Sturzberg. But first, here's what's making news elsewhere in Canada right now. I'm Hannah Marazzi, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like. A reform synagogue in Barrie, Ontario, is offering free Hebrew school for children as a way to attract more of the unaffiliated Jewish families who are moving into the area north of Toronto. Rabbi Audrey Kaufman of Am Shalom says she literally had a dream last fall that her weekly Hebrew religious school should be free. So she found some donors that'll cover the cost. She's hired a principal, and they're changing the name to Am Shalom Jewish Heritage School to make make it less religious sounding. The school had 18 students last year in grades 4 to bar mitzvah age. The rabbi recognizes they'll be competing for pupils with the other supplementary school in Barrie that's run by the Chabad synagogue, but theirs costs about $600 for tuition. Kaufman says there are a couple of rules to be eligible. You'll have to attend 70% of the classes, which are held on Saturday mornings during services, and families need to join the synagogue, but there's a discount for new members. We put the link for more information in our show notes. By the way, Rabbi Kaufman is the niece of the late Rabbi David Monson of Toronto. 
And joining me now from Toronto is Richard Sturzberg. He's a media executive. He used to run the CBC, and now he's chair of the Sephardi Voices Project and co-authored the book. I want to go back a bit in time before we talk about what's next and talk about how you got involved in this project when you are not Sephardic. Around 2009, a friend of mine, a very old friend of mine, who is the director of School of Judaic Studies at the University of Miami, decided that it would be a good idea to document the experiences of these people. And what he wanted to do was to create a sort of miniature version of the Shoah collection that Spielberg had put together. There would be video interviews with people uh, who could describe what their lives were like before the expulsions, what the nature of the expulsions were, et cetera, et cetera. So he had phoned me up and said, he said, would I give him a little hand? Maybe figuring out how to get this organized. And so it started. And in the process, uh, he accumulated a very large archive, not just of these interviews, but people, families would give him family photographs, they'd give him old passports, school exam results. And so the archive grew and grew. Um, and by the time that uh, we had started to think about the book, he had 450 of uh, these interviews. But it's a little bit of a race against time because some of these people are now quite elderly. Or, in fact, some of the people who are in the archive are dead. And so, you know, the people you want are people who remember what it was like before the expulsions, when they they were, in fact, part and parcel of these countries and important citizens within them. Why did it take non- Sephardi or Mizrahi Jews to do this project when the Sephardi community themselves has, you know, great writers and and filmmakers. Why you guys? And what obstacles or challenges did you have to overcome in order to sort of, you know, be trusted because you're not from that community yourself? Well, I don't really know the answer to the question. I mean, um, there are a number of books that have been written by Sephardis. Uh, on this, probably the most uh, famous is uh, a French book called Le Grand Déracinement. Um, but uh, in our case, I mean, nobody had thought to put together an archive like this. And uh, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't have the sense that uh, there was particularly much an issue of trust. In fact, in many cases, people were happy to be able to have an opportunity to tell their stories and happy that this work was being done. You know, people, one of the things that's very interesting, people have very kind of mixed feelings about what happened to them. That in some cases, they are understandably bitter. But in other cases, they also remember what their lives were like when it was okay. And then they feel this extraordinary loss of these ancient cultures, you know, I mean, they're all vanishing. There, there won't be any more Arab-speaking Jews anymore. That's all, that's all gone. And the culture that went with it and the music and the food and the sense of community, it's all gone. And so I think that people were pleased uh, to have the opportunity to have at least, you know, fragments of it preserved to the extent that it's possible to do so. Well, 
I want to dig a little bit deeper into what you just said. In some countries, thanks to the Abraham Accords, things have, uh, in, I'm speaking about Morocco, yeah. uh, or, um, you know, in some other countries now, including the UAE, you know, uh, it's cool to be Jewish now, and there's a revival of Jewish, ancient Jewish flavor or establishing new Jewish traditions. Um, did, did those countries, I mean, they're sort of special cases uh, yeah. compared to what you just said, right? Yeah. Well, but I mean, still people who were, uh, just, I mean, the UAE is very small, but people who were displaced from Morocco, uh, you know, I think they're pleased that the Moroccan government has turned around on this. The Moroccan government is now trying to, you know, restore the old Jewish quarter and some of the synagogues and whatnot. I think people are happy about that. Um, but, you know, still, uh, the, the expulsions from Morocco uh create you know a kind of sense of bitterness although people are happy that there's a shift now it's it's weird in places like uh, in places like egypt the egyptian government for example has gone to great lengths to restore the old synagogues in uh, cairo and alexandria um and they've invited even people you know uh, egyptians uh, to come home uh, for the initiation or the reinitiation, relaunch of these old synagogues, having, you know, uh, cleaned them all up and renovated them. They've done a very nice job, but they won't actually tell their own people that they've done this. So it's the weirdest thing. They, they seem to be, in the case of the Egyptians, a little bit schizophrenic on it. Um, well, they know about they know about Jewish tourism, and that's what part of that is. Part of it is there, right? Yeah. Although I do think, I mean, one of the things you'll see when you read further on in the book is, you know, the the sort of expulsion of the Jews was not just a catastrophe for the people who were expelled; it was a catastrophe for these countries, and it was a catastrophe at a number of different levels. It was a catastrophe in the sense that they lost and many, many of their most gifted citizens, whether they were cabinet ministers or musicians or intellectuals or business people or whatever. And also, you know, the more you make a country homogeneous, the more you reduce the diversity of a country, then the more you damage the fabric of the country itself. I don't know whether this will come about, but my uh, overwhelming hope would be that there would be a process of reconciliation and truth-telling. Uh, mind you, I think this also needs to be done in Israel at the same time, in terms of what actually happened with respect to the Palestinians. But, you know, we in Canada, I think, have done uh, a pretty good job uh, over the last little while coming to grips with our uh, disastrous treatment of Indigenous people. In terms of, like, what the whole Murray Sinclair process what actually happened? What was true? And I think that uh, this whole issue of um, the relationship between these countries and, uh, and the Jews generally cannot actually be concluded. I mean, the Moroccan thing is a small thing, but it can't, but it can't really be concluded until people have actually opened up the historical record and said, what really happened? What really happened? Then that lays a basis for actually real reconciliation. I interviewed a um, very senior and very prominent uh, former Canadian um, Sephardi man who lives now in California, Joe Samuels. This is for Farhud Day last year. 
the Farhood Day, yeah. Yeah, the 80th anniversary of Farhood. Um, and what he said to us was that unlike other refugees, and he was mentioning the Palestinians, but other refugees who got status and financial backing and help, the yeah. Jews of the Arab countries were left with nothing and got nothing and never asked for anything and fended for themselves all these years. What do you know about that? And how important is that a theme in the book? Well, it's true. But the difference is a little bit that the poor old Palestinians, nobody took them in. Like the Arab countries didn't take them in. And they didn't take them in, I think, partly because they wanted them rotting in those camps. What did happen, which was very different in the case of uh, the Sephardi, Israel took in enormous numbers. Uh, I mean, enormous numbers and went to, uh, you know, great lengths to be able to get people out. And then Canada took in a lot. The United States took in a lot. Britain took in some. Uh, so it was a kind of different circum set of circumstances from the Palestinians where the Arab countries, the Muslim countries didn't want to take them in. In a curious kind of way, the fact that, you know, if you look at the at the outcomes with respect to sort of all these years later, how did people do the dispossessed Palestinians and the dispossessed Jews, dispossessed Jews have done better. And I think that uh, this is a sort of mini version of the story of Jewish history. That's <laughs> a story of catastrophic loss, but at the same time, it's a story of resilience. I read in your they were not, Although, when they did go to Israel, they were treated very badly. So they were treated as second-class citizens and, uh, you know, and, and had to really struggle in a way that my impression is they didn't have to struggle in uh, the United States or Canada or France, for that matter. Well, there was definitely discrimination in, in Canada in terms of um, how the Ashkenazi community treated the Moroccans when they came in the 70s and 60s to Montreal. Definitely that was. That's true, but I was not talking about them. I was talking about the Canadian population more generally. So. I didn't realize, I loved this, this information, that Israel paid Morocco basically a ransom per... Yeah. Per refugee, tell us yeah. about how you found that out. Martin Gilbert, uh, you know the great biographer Churchill, um, wrote a very good book called Ishmael's House, and uh, it's it's documented in Martin Gilbert's book. That's how I found out. You mentioned one famous person in your book uh, that I have heard of. I'm sure lots of people may have seen the movie Call Me by Your Name. Mm -hmm. Aside from that playwright and novelist uh who were some of the people who uh are in your book that people would know uh the philosopher Jacques Derrida uh who I think it's fair to say is one of the most influential um he moved from Algeria as a boy the the physicist the Nobel Prize winning physicist Claude Cohen Tanuji who uh left Algiers and came to Paris Bernard Henri Levy you know, who is, I think it's fair to say, France's most prominent public intellectual. So the, the list, I mean, the list is quite long. The guy who uh, runs Pfizer, uh, the big drug company, is in fact Sephardi, although he came from a Greek, from the Greek Sephardi community. It's, the book is, is launched in March. Uh, it was supposed to come out last year. So is that a COVID reason? Yes, that's exactly right. So we started up again this, this spring. We've done some events in uh, Miami. We are uh, doing event this big event in Ottawa on June 2nd. 
But the exhibition is going to stay open uh, for the next mm, three months, I think it is, as part of a thing that's called Doors Open Ottawa. I mean, if any of your listeners are in Ottawa on June 2nd at 6 o'clock, it's free. All they have to do is just show up. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout-out goes to Mark Mitkovitz of Toronto. He's a former CJN columnist, and he dropped by our booth Sunday at the Walk for Israel after party. And we'll end the show with a clip from Rabbi Audrey Kaufman explaining why she thinks Jewish education should be free. And we're trying to do everything we can to entice students to have the ability to learn about their heritage. There are so many young Jewish families now moving up to Simcoe County, to Innisfil, Alcona, and the Barry area, that we want to make Jewish education readily accessible for every student who wants to take part in it. This episode has been brought to you by Looking Back, Moving Forward, 160 Years of Jewish Life in B.C. Published by the Jewish Museum and Archives of British Columbia for their 50th anniversary, this elegant volume is a -a once-in-a-generation collection of Jewish life and history throughout the province. Order your copy today at jewishmuseum.ca.